All right, folks, thank you all so much for joining us tonight, uh, and, and welcome to Curtains on Fire Live. I'm Alex Bernstein. Uh, I'm going to be hosting a bit tonight, and I'm so excited to be doing this with you. Uh, we're all excited to be doing this with you. Uh, Curtains on Fire is the writer's workshop for the Rising Curtain Theater Company in New Jersey. This workshop has been running and meeting weekly now since April of last year as something of, uh, of an antidote of, if you will, for the, for the COVID era. We basically started this out of the theater company because, uh, you know, we couldn't leave our houses. Um, and so we created this virtual writer's workshop. It's been meeting every Monday um, since then. And uh, one of the goals of the workshop is that we produce this ongoing podcast, Curtains on Fire. We were four, we're four episodes into it now. Um, and tech, tonight is going to be the fifth episode. So thank you all so much for being a part of episode number five. Um, in these, uh, in, in what we do with the podcast uh, is that uh, we bring in actors, uh, some of these guys here, um, and, uh, and some uh, friends of ours. And uh, we also add a lot of special effects and sound effects because for the podcast, for the regular podcast, we want just the highest quality things. We want you basically to hear audio little mini movies. That's what we've been going for with the podcast. But tonight we're doing something a little different. Uh, what we wanted to do is we wanted to invite all of you guys uh, to basically come into what we do on, on the weekly basis in, in one of our regular Monday night workshops. So uh, the workshops that we do when we meet are, are prompt based. So that means that uh, every two weeks we give our writers extremely vague random prompts like, maybe can you drive my car? Or there's a fish here or glitter. Glitter. <laughs> we just had glitter a couple of weeks ago. And we, and we try and keep them vague and random so that uh, so that there's nothing necessarily that people associate with that. There's some exceptions to that case. You can hear one of, at least one of those exceptions tonight. Um, but in general, we try to keep it pretty vague and random. Um, and then our group, uh, the, the, the writers here, have two weeks to write a mini play, five to 10 pages tops. And we read these pieces every week. We read all the pieces. And then uh, over the course of, of several weeks, uh, me and our, our co-producer, who unfortunately can't be with us tonight, Ted Wrigley, uh, we try and pick some of the pieces and we go through rotation of the people in the group. And that's what becomes the podcast. So these incredibly funny, brilliant, gifted writers have been cranking out dozens and dozens and dozens of scripts since the beginning of last year. And tonight we wanted you uh, to invite you into this workshop to see how we do it. Uh, and it's good that I'm rambling a bit because some people are still coming in. Um, uh, uh, so uh, thank you for being a part of that. So we have five uh, writers and one brilliant actor with us tonight. Uh, I just want to introduce the folks who are doing this. We have uh, David Doster. Hello. We have Jay Strong. Hi. We have Jake Daler. Howdy. We have Hank Fendel. You knew. You already met me. And we have this brilliant new actor who is making her debut tonight. Uh, everybody give a big hand to Jane Doster, who has joined us. I'm bringing tonight everything cool. Straight, straight from Moulin Rouge on Broadway. Jane has joined us tonight, so we're very excited to have all these guys. And what we're doing, we're also doing something a little different tonight, which is that we're doing this sort of dealer's choice. Uh, like I said, usually um, Ted, Ted and I sort of have the role of going through uh, the thousands of strips that this group has come up with. 
um, and, and we try to pick ones that we think will be good for the next podcast. But uh, for tonight, because we're doing this special live event, we said, you guys pick your own pieces. We just said, you know, uh, you know, you guys know your stuff. You know it as well as any anybody. Um, pick your own pieces. And we kind of gave them a, a, a specific time limit. Um, so we have six pieces tonight. Uh, one of our folks has two pieces because they're very short. Um, and uh, I think that's about um, the bulk of it. Um, and please stick with us afterwards. Um, we're going to ask you guys if you can, again, um, mute yourselves and keep your, your cameras off um, while we're doing the pieces. When we're done with the pieces, we're going to open it up to you guys uh, to, for any Q&A with uh, any of the writers here. If you want to ask them about any of their pieces or their process or, or life in general, you can certainly do that. And at that point, we'll open it up and you can ask questions. Uh, 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 either um, we do ask if you will raise your hands at that point. I'll remind you then. Or if you'll do it uh, through the chat, either of those is fine. But uh, we just want to see if we can avoid everybody yelling out at the same time. So without further ado, let's get to Curtains on Fire Live. Uh, again, thank you all so much for joining us tonight. Our first piece, our first piece takes place inside a car driving on Interstate 80 in Nebraska. This is Green Elephant by David Doster. Inside a car on Interstate 80 in Nebraska. Jack and Diane, 50s. Jack is driving. Diane is in the back seat. I can't hold it. Well, it's either the side of the road or use that camping toilet next to you. It's all ready for you back there, cat litter and everything. Gee, thanks. You know I can't do the side of the road. I need privacy. Look out there. Flat nothing. It's not that bad. For you, you could be spraying passing cars with one hand and holding a free car wash sign in the other. I was happy to set up the green elephant for you at the last restaurant. Are you kidding? Too many people there, all seeing me fumbling around with something that has utilitent stamped in large letters over the door. It might as well say pooping in here. The public restrooms looked okay. Okay, I refuse to visit the scenic COVID toilet plumes, plumes of Ogallala, Nebraska. Yeah, well, they look pretty scenic on the postcard. You're not helping. Diane moves the camping toilet to the floor of the back seat, looks out the windows, quickly pulls down her shorts and assumes the position while trying to hold a blanket over the backseat window. You know, this reminds me of sitting with the kids when they were potty training. Really not helping. Remember that? You used to sing songs to them. I could sing a song for you. Fuck you. Oh, who has to boop? Dan has to boop, 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 boop. Only now do I realize why that didn't work. And probably scarred them for life. Can you just put on some loud music? I can't believe I'm doing this. Okay, let's see. Ooh, Spotify has a pooping music playlist. What? Let's see. Uh, Breakaway, Free Fallen. Oh, here you go. Starts playing Sitting, Waiting, Wishing by Jack Johnson. I hate you. Oh, no. Don't look. Here it comes. Oh. Party no. <laughs> Oh, wow. <laughs> ah. Ah. <laughs> so who's looking forward to driving back next week? Blackout. 
that was Green Elephant by David Doster. Um, and I, I want to just uh, do one little disclaimer here uh, that I probably should have done in the beginning. Uh, I just want to let you know that uh, the, the, the pieces tonight are, are PG-13, so there are no graphic acts of violence or anything, but uh, except for one of these. But uh, but there there may be some cursing, so if you uh, if you have fragile ears or have children, you know you may want to send them to bed. Um, okay, moving right along. Our next piece takes place on the day of the Capitol building riots in Washington. This is three by Jay Strong. Interior government property day. If you're president and you overturn an election, they let you do it. Grab them by the plebiscite. Three armed men in red baseball caps, Pittman, Matheson, and Beaumont, run under a banner of dear leader and down a hall. Stop the squeal! That's not right, is it? It's Matheson. Why are we doing this? Because he told us to. Because we're not sheep. They find an important looking office door. This door here! Break it! Break it! So you a neo-Nazi? Oh man, Obama commie. What? We're in. Interior, high officials' office, day. They bust in and see someone duck behind the desk. Behind the desk, get him! They open fire. Wait! They look behind the desk at the body. It's not, no! It looks more like him! The hair! Oh, don't fall for it. This way! He ducks out a side door. The others hesitate, then follow him. Interior, government, property, day. Three armed men in red baseball caps run under a banner of dear leader and down a hall. They find an important looking office door. This door here! Break it, break it! Pittman grabs Mathis's arm. What did we see back there? Nothing, man. I don't need to believe truth is real. He notices Pittman's forearm tattoo. What's his tat? Don't trip on me? Yeah, like it says. Like on the flag? Yeah, with the snake biting his own tail. What? We're in. Interior, high official's office, day. They bust in and see someone duck into the closet. In the closet! They open fire, then pause to reload. Matheson opens the bullet-riddled closet door. They look at the body. Oh, shit! That's not her! What? Oh, shit, shit! No, it's him! So orange! But no! But how? But before! No, don't say it! He menaces the others with his rifle. This way! He ducks out the side door. The others hesitate, then follow him. Interior, government property, day. Three armed men in red baseball caps run under a banner of dear leader and down a hall. What's going on? I don't know, but it's my privilege to be a part of it. They find an important looking office door. This door here! Break it, break it! Find him and take him out! Right. Yeah! Pence is hung. Pence is hung. Sometimes I really don't know about you. Hey, we're all maggots. Here. Make America go awry. What's for him? Interior. High official's office day. They bust in and see someone duck out the window. He's going out the window! They open fire, then pause to reload. They look out the window at the body. Oh, no. Not again. It's not him! It's still POTUS! Wow. This is starting to feel less like a thought experiment and more like an existential criticism. Shut the fuck up! Bang! He shoots Pittman, who falls. Hey, what the fuck? Bang! He shoots Madison, who falls. Who the fuck was that guy? I'm Q! He shoots Beaumont. Bang! But that doesn't make any sense. He falls. They all die. Dissolve, too. 
Interior, government property, day, three armed men in race-based and red baseball caps run under a banner of dear leader and down a hall. So you an incel? No, fictitious militia. Wait, is the Bueller baseballers? No, I'm Ann Taylor. You like this blouse? What? They find an important looking office door. This door here! They bust it open and rush inside. There is shouting and gunfire on screen as the sound drops out. Host Rob Serling steps into the empty hallway, smoking a cigarette. Witness, if you will, lost in the labyrinth of a government building, three men chasing a lie. A trio of misguided American fascists realizing a chaotic dream, who find instead their worst nightmare, one they can never escape, here in the Halfwood Zone. Fade to black. Cue closing theme music. <laughs> Thank that you. was three by Jay Straw. <laughs> Moving right along. Our next piece takes place late at night inside a high-end auto mechanic shop. This is Forever by Hank Fandel. Annie, about 24, wearing white coveralls with a rag in her pocket underneath the 2015 Porsche Spider inside a meticulous warehouse-type high-end auto mechanic shop. Most of the lights are off. Low-volume jazz in the background. Evan, mid-30s, expensive suit, enters. Sees legs extended from under the car. Alan? Milo, sit. Still on her back, she and Evan look at each other, and Milo, a huge Great Dane, appears next to Annie. Milo sits in front of Annie, facing Evan. Milo is intensely riveted upon Evan, nearly trembling. A coiled spring, trigger ready to lunge upon Evan at the slightest urge. Milo never takes his eyes off Evan's eyes. Annie touches Milo's back and gets up without losing contact with Milo ever throughout the scene. Annie and Evan, especially, must maintain the guise of civility at all costs throughout the scene, so as not to provoke Milo to action. Who the hell are you? Mac. What the hell are you doing in here? I'm looking for Alan. At fucking midnight. You're a liar. She takes out her phone. There wasn't supposed to be anyone in here. Says who? Alan. You said you were looking for Alan. 911 motherfucker. I lied. Alan sent me. Right, one more digit. Five, six, one, nine. Annie stops. The door code, five, six, one, nine. Alan gave it to me. Why? There wasn't supposed to be anybody in here. I was just supposed to come in and get something. Like what? Milo was always here. Alan told me I have a stake in my waistband. Evan turns, pulling his sports jacket aside to show her, and then slowly pulls a package 16-ounce porterhouse from his back waistband. A gift. That's a can of paint. You would have crushed your throat before you got it unwrapped. Look, you weren't supposed to be here. Nobody was supposed to be here. Don't you talk to your father? Yeah, I know. I figured you two aren't getting along so much. Smart girl like you get knocked up by such a douchebag. He's a genius. Yeah, I heard. A genius is way into an $80,000 debt with the wrong people. It's not like calling the crooks at Harvard where you get a lifetime to pay it off. This, you get weeks. He developed a high-tech gaming system to beat Vegas. Yeah, that worked well. Sweetheart, I'm not a genius, and I can see that Wall Street is the place for the ultimate high-tech gaming systems. 
At least when an algorithm breaks down, it's John and Joan Q. Public who lose their shit. Never play with your own money. I'm going to call my dad. Don't call Alan. Just let me take what I came for and let sleeping dogs lie. What did you come for? The Tesla and the Ferrari. He peels back the plastic of mistake and drops it in front of Milo, who never takes his eyes off of Evan. I have two people inside. And he starts to dial. Look, let's not pass the point of no return. Let's not do things that cannot be undone. I have to leave with these cars. Please. My dad didn't send you. No. The genius. And he wants to vomit. She hangs onto Milo's ear. Evan shifts, purposely allowing her to glimpse the gun under his jacket. Your baby daddy. I'll trade you Milo for your phone. Put him in his cage. We'll leave you locked in the break room. And I'll put your phone under the Porsche. And then you become a big girl and protect your family. My family is huge. It's not going to be big enough. It's not the type of thinking I was hoping for. Let's just analyze this. With all the events going on that we are not even aware of, the world is turning for you pretty much the way it was before I walked in here. And if we proceed exactly as I described, the world will continue pretty much just as it is now. The only difference will be that these two cars will go to another country. Your father's insurance might go up a bit. The man I'm assuming you love will be free of a potentially fatal mistake and you will have gained experience and displayed the wisdom and maturity necessary to protect your whole world. You will have saved them all. Saved them? Yeah. From what? And more importantly, for what? If I agree to this, I'm not saving anything. I'm giving away my whole world. No, not at all. I just explained it to you. How stupid can you be? We would have to live with this every day from now on. Every day we could come here knowing that someone just walked in and took what they wanted from our life. Our safety and trust. Who knows when it would happen again? You would own us. And I would have to live with myself forever knowing that I let it happen. No, you're thinking too much. This is just a business deal. It's not going to happen again. And you'll be saving your lover. Do you have, do you even hear yourself? You're telling me that if I refuse to let you destroy my world as it is, I won't have to live with someone as the father to my child who jeopardized his family with a failed scam and then went behind their backs and betrayed them again with another scheme guaranteed to destroy their lives. I'm not lying down. You do what you have to do. Who the fuck do you think you are, Antigone? Aunt who? Forget it. You're not only stupid, but a coward. Jesus, you are. You're asking for it. You're begging. This is how bright you are. You came here uninvited, created the circumstances, and now want to blame the results, the only possible results, on me. Not so uninvited. And I, and I hold all the cards here. I'm in charge. And I'm trying to help you because you don't understand us grown-ups. And I'm not going to let a little girl get in my way. And a dog. Why can't you just be like more like Milo? Animals are good, simple and tough. They understand the imposition of will. If we were animals, there would be no question here. You shouldn't even be looking me in the eye. The way you're not looking Milo in the eye, if good, if good simple, and tough makes me an animal, so be it. It's you that are cross-threaded by the imposition of will, my will. Back out now before we do something that can't be undone. Jesus, you are the princess. You grew up here in daddy's garage, insulated with all the righteousness and confidence and indignation of being the king's daughter. With his dog, for, uh, for, 
With this dog, your protection and constant companion and the mechanics, your knights and jesters, and they taught you the craft of the kingdom, which is why you're here, unafraid in your domain, oblivious to the world of adults. I'm not alone, and my world is real. Every bit as real as the cesspool you live in, and I'm going to protect it. I'm not letting you invade or destroy it. You don't even know what, what matters. Your world's an illusion, or maybe a delusion. I'm trying to help you. Your genius moron isn't the only fool you're ignorant of. Let me tell you about your daddy. Be very careful. The only way to help me and yourself is to go back out that door, out of our world forever. You don't get it. Your world doesn't exist. Antigone's, da Antigone's daddy, in the end at least, was decent. I'll tell you about it, Alan. Your king, so to speak. <laughs> Annie releases Milo, who lunges as Evan fires a shot through Milo's neck, and Milo's crushing jaws envelop Evan's neck below the chin. As Evan tries to grab Milo's head, the gun goes off a second time. Evan falls onto his back, dropping the gun. Milo on top of Evan with a lion's embrace, and Evan start to go limp, their eyes locked, both gurgling through their breath. Annie holding her hand against her neck while the rapid migration of dark crimson pumped from between her fingers falls from the neckline of her white coveralls, arcs straight from vertical to horizontal with a slight bounce like a felled tree under Milo's back. In less than five seconds, the three rattle their final exhalation almost in unison. All their fluids reclaimed by the universe on the floor and swirls the gun drinks. Lights begin to fade. Indeterminate voices, loud banging on the door as lights fade to black. That was forever <laughs> by Hank Fendel. Moving right along. Sometimes in Curtains on Fire, uh, over the course of the last year and a half, we give um, monologue assignments. And, uh, uh, and one of our best and most frequent monologists uh, is Jake Daler. And Jake Daler has a piece he's going to do for you called The Cure. I'm 62 years old. I used to be angry a lot. I'm still angry occasionally, like on St. Patrick's Day, but only because I live in Manhattan. Generally, though... My life is so good, if I went around pissed off, I'd be a total ingrate. As a kid, I was mad about everybody dropping dead on me. Dad, three grandparents, two friends, several pets. I didn't even know I was angry because that was before therapy. And by the time I got to high school and college, I coped with stress through sarcasm and weekend binge drinking. After graduating, I moved to New York City and became a cater waiter slash actor just when AIDS started. Over a four year period, 30 friends died. Then my son worshiping big sister in Florida bit the dust because of, from skin cancer. My apartment was burgled. I got whacked in the head by a two by four when I accidentally walked through a gang fight. And I was mostly striking out at my fledgling career as an actor. So you'll understand how all that could bring on the blues. Break dancing was springing up on every corner though. And I thought it might be distracting to learn how to do it. I was 25 and surprisingly funky for a straight white guy. The first and only place to offer a regular class was Broadway Dance Center. It was taught by two 15-year-old street dancer guys who did the down on the floor stuff and a street dancer girl who handled the standing up electric boogie part. 
It was summertime and students were a mix of locals and visitors serious about dance and ranging in age from 12 to 17, mostly girls. To them and my teachers, I was a curiosity and unimaginably old. When the studio owner, a veteran hoofer in his 50s, happened by and caught a glimpse of me popping and locking with the teens and tweens, he nearly peed in his jazz pants. Not just because I stood out as a Midwestern, opie-looking male, a head taller than my classmates, but also because against all odds and surely his personal expectation, I was holding my own, getting it almost right. He became a fan, stopping by the open door, sometimes with pals in tow, to have a friendly laugh at my progress. He told me I didn't have to pay anymore. After a month, he asked me to help teach. I had a total of two commercial auditions ever where I got to use my breakdance training. The first I lost fair and square to someone more talented. The second time was different. The product was Orida frozen fries. And what they wanted to represent them was an average looking guy in his 20s. And I was very average looking. At the audition, there was a kid who was a good jazz dancer, but effeminate, couldn't really throw down. There was a black guy and a Puerto Rican girl who were both better than, better than I was, but apparently I had the right look to sell potatoes. Uh, in me, they saw the epitome of white soullessness, perfect for their target demographic. The callback would be a cakewalk. Meanwhile, I was up for a non-breakdancing Maxwell House coffee ad where I'd play a camp counselor taking a bunch of real-life muscular dystrophy kids on a fishing trip. I was second choice. The guy who got the commercial had red curls and freckles, the perfect smiley counselor. They asked if I wanted to be an extra with possible upgrade to principal actor status. This carrot was always dangled as enticement, but rarely materialized, materialized and never to me. I was even downgraded once. Extras are actors in the background with no dialogue, human furniture, and set dressing. Anyway, I had nothing else going on and I liked commercial extra work. It paid well and you got fed. It would be an easy two day shoot. I agreed. And then at 5.50 that evening, just after business hours, the Orida people phoned my agent announcing my breakdancing callback the next day. I was the overwhelming favorite, but had to be at the callback or I would have very little chance of booking it. It was too late to pull out of my Maxwell House gig. We couldn't find anyone to send in my place. I was frustrated and furious, but I'd said yes to the extra job and I wasn't gonna leave him hanging. I didn't sleep. The pickup time was early. I was pissed off at the world and first fiercely determined to have a crummy experience. They better fucking upgrade me. Not that it mattered. Unlike the high value commercial I was missing, this one was just an image spot where the company showed off its good Samaritan side by donating specialized playground equipment for disabled kids. It was pure public relations, would run very few times and net a pittance in residual dollars. I was never very good at smiling for on-camera commercials and had always been self-conscious and inhibited. This breakdancing thing was something I'd worked at and could do a little. It'd be a chance to show that although I don't look the part, I could bust a move. The whole thing sucked. A number of my peers, some of whom, when it would go on to great success, would have blown Maxwell House off and gone with the Orida, to the Orida callback without the slightest misgiving. Why did I have to do the right thing? The cast of New York crew rode out to Jersey together in a van. The other principal actor wasn't even an actor. She was a counselor from a special needs camp. She had a ready smile and a cuddly helper dog. I wanted to throw up. Everyone on board was chatty and upbeat. Sullen and antisocial, my face buried in a book the entire drive, I was too focused on the injustice being done to me to notice the lovely day or beautiful woods and lake we'd arrived at. Yuck! What's up, weather scenery and people? Where are your priorities? Doesn't anybody give a crap that I'm missing out on a chance to at big money hawking frozen taters? Nothing makes a bad day worse than noticing the whole world spinning against you in the opposite direction. A big tent was set up with food and everyone was there waiting. Bright sunlight reflected on a sea of metal. 
Wheelchairs, braces, canes, and walkers. They belonged to the kids, many with frail, gnarled up little bodies. Unlike me, most of them were laughing and having a good time. Parents were on hand, nervous and proud, ready to help as needed. I found the director and grilled him on what was expected of me and how long would it take before I'd be done with this place and heading home. The set wasn't quite, quite ready and the principals needed makeup, so I had time to kill. The food looked okay and the first rule of being an actor is accept every free meal you're offered. I overheard a lot of parental conversation, primarily of a medical nature. There was a support meeting feel to it. I wondered if they all already knew each other and how the ad agency managed to round them up. Did they just call Jerry Lewis at the telethon and ask him to send over a busload? I learned that there are nine different strains of muscular dystrophy, all bad. Some kill you in your teens. It's an inherited genetic disease, so parents probably have a heaping portion of guilt added to their burden. None of this was making me feel any better. Parenting of a normal kid looks stressful enough. This group was up in the game to a next level circle of hell. What a world, huh? What kind of God would allow kids to suffer or doesn't immediately intervene to stop it? Not every child was needed in the first scene and neither was I. A 13 year old boy named Rafi wanted to chuck stones into the lake while we waited. His mom was slight and not physically strong enough to manage the journey. I was within earshot and feeling useless. So I volunteered to push him in his heavy low tech chair out onto the sliver of a beach. Picking up these kids is not like lifting a healthy person. Their muscles don't work. They can't hold on or help you by wrapping themselves around you. When we got down to business, I was idiotically worried Rafi was gonna freak out that he couldn't hardly do any part of this activity by himself without my help. Like somehow he would have been unfamiliar with his own massive limitations. He was pretty weak. So when we got to the water's edge, I had to find a small rock, put it in his hand, place mine around his and toss over and over for a solid hour. Incredibly sad and boring, right? Surprisingly, not to Rafi. When the first pebble splashed into the water, he blindsided me by exploding with joy. It never occurred to me that this would be an accomplishment worth celebrating. Luckily, Rafi didn't share my perspective by a long shot. Together, we must have repeated our stone lobbing 50 in a row, and he whooped and hollered each time like he was throwing touchdown passes to the Super Bowl. I don't think I'd ever been at his level of happiness about anything in my whole life. He was chipping away at me with every preposterous shriek of delight. I thought of that line from that Who song. They couldn't prevent Jack from feeling happy. It defied logic. This little boy who would never climb out of that wheelchair under his own power and wouldn't live to adulthood was convulsed with glee and cheering me up. What the hell? Had a secret team designed this special task to yank the big dope out of a myopic snit? As if Rafi were yelling, hey, a-hole, yeah, you, listen up. Life's short, and it's the only one we've got. It can be cruel and shitty, but if you stop complaining and exert some creative effort, there are all kinds of ways to find the wonderful in it. Now, I'm sure it wasn't always sunshine and peaches for Rafi. It probably sucked to be him most of the time, but not at that moment. For him, what he was experiencing was totally awesome, and he was going to drink in every delicious drop for as long as it lasted. Of course, any resistance on my part would have been futile. What he worked himself into was contagious. He was like the typhoid Mary of jubilation, and it was either join in or get out of the way. Duh. Touche. Well played, young Raphael, well played. The rest of the day and the next were variations on the theme. Surprise, I didn't get upgraded and I never got the all right of breakdancing commercial, but I got over it because Rafi and his crew gave me something better. And I couldn't stay angry, no matter how hard I tried. That was The Cure by Jake Taylor, read by Jake Taylor. 
Our next piece is another piece by David Oscar. Uh, in this piece, we're going to take you way, way, way back to the year 1150 and a peasant's house in northern England. This is great moments in linguistics. Interior, peasant's house, northern England, 1150 AD. Theobald and his wife, Treya, are preparing brunch. And that's what I said to him. You call that plague? Look at this, you moron. I got some fucking plague for you. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like the public beheading was crowded this morning. There's a knock at the door. Oh, I forgot. Mr. Erickson's coming today to barter. Oh, God, fucking Vikings. He's so weird. Never takes his helmet off. Treya walks to the door. Now be nice. The Vikings are doing the best to fit in. Treya opens the door. Hello, Mr. Erickson. Come in. Can I take your helmet? Hello, Treya. Oh, well, you know, Vikings must always leave their helmets on and in the presence of a beautiful lady. Oh, Mr. Erickson. All the livestock. Ooh. Hello, Theobald. What a relief. I was hoping to barter some things. Oh, what you got? Well, this broadsword, some cloth, a bucket. That it? Oh, and uh, in the bucket there is safe fish here. Christ, what did you say? Theobald, don't. Jesus, safe fish? Really? You know, in old English, we don't use the masculine gender for fish. It's feminine. Sailfish. Not safe fish. Is it? Oh, I'm terribly sorry. I mean, you Vikings come here with your raping and pillaging. One would expect you'd give us the fucking courtesy to use proper old English grammatical gender. Theo, quit being such an asshole. Honestly, I meant no harm by it. Ah, sister. I'm sorry. God damn it. If only old English and old Norse shared common gender articles, you wouldn't be stumbling over this all the time. Right, if only. Hey, I got it. How about we fucking get rid of them? What? No grammatical gender in Old English? Can you do that? Yeah! From now on! Screw it! They're gone! Poof! That would make life so much easier! Fucking A! That gives me an idea! Let's create the genderless indefinite article A, for example. There is A fish here! Oh, even better! Why don't we add fucking in there? You know, a fucking fish! A fucking chair! <laughs> a fucking door! Ah, got a nice ring to it! Hmm. Sudden majestic theme music plays. Everyone startles. This has been another edition of Great Moments in Linguistics. No! You mean great fucking moments! You need to add a fucking linguistics! <laughs> That was Great Moments in Linguistics by David Doster. You only have David Doster to blame. <laughs> Your ears are bleeding. I suggest you go get some clean towels. Uh, this is our final piece. You guys ready? Our final piece takes place inside a large Manhattan executive office. I think so. Sure, peace. I'm reading this page here. Okay, hold on. Sorry. 
<clears throat> this, this piece takes place inside a large Manhattan executive office. This is the Arthur, the, the, the Arthur problem, uh, and it's written by me. Scene, inside a large corporate corner office, Dave, late 20s, meets Mr. Michelson, 50s, the head of the accounting department. The door to the office is ajar. Michelson looks through a report. Dave holds a stack of files and listens. Mm -hmm. So it looks like Deirdre's doing well. Receivables are completely up to date. Yeah, I was actually thinking we might consider promoting her on the next go around. Really? How long has she been here? Three years. I'm okay with that. Good progress. Who's next? Dave hands him the next report. Um, Arthur. Michelson looks through the report, shakes his head. Oh, his numbers are so awful. Dave, month after month? I know, sir. Michelson's shoulders drop tiredly. He looks at Dave. How long did we say we were going to give him? One more quarter? I think it's time to make a change, Dave. Well, I mean, he's really struggled here. I think we have to realize it's just not a good fit. There are a lot of people who could easily do this job. Well, I wanted to talk to you about it, Mr. Michelson. I have a theory. And maybe it could turn this whole thing around. All right. So I started really looking at Arthur's numbers and they just don't make sense. He's a bright guy, a UPenn graduate, 3.8 GPA. So this just baffled me. Mm -hmm. I looked at his write-ups as well. He's an awful speller. Types, typos, everywhere. So what more is there to talk about, Dave? Right. So I was talking to my wife and she has this cousin, exact same thing. Brilliant woman, but spells everything wrong. Transposes numbers. Yes. Turns out she's dyslexic, sir. And I think Arthur's dyslexic too. Michelson is suddenly slightly alarmed. Dave beams with his discovery. It's reading. What? It's reading. A language disorder, sir. It, no, no, I know what it is. But but see, that, that, that makes sense. I, I mean, if there's an actual reason that he shut the door. What? Shut the door, shut the door. Dave, confused, jumps up and shuts the door. He sits back down. Michelson takes a deep, annoyed breath and composes it. <sighs> okay, let's start over. From Deirdre's doing great. Possible promotion sounds good. Arthur, mm, not doing so well. Bad numbers. We decide. Let's call it a day. Uh, great. Done. Good meeting. Thanks for coming in. That, 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 that's it? That's it. Good meeting. But... But but I see the. I'm sorry. I. But Dave. Long beat. They stare at each other. Michael tries to engage with Dave almost telepathically. Dave still doesn't get it. Maybe this is something we could bring HR. No 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 no. I mean, I don't think they would consider this a full-on. Hey, you ever heard my friend Flintstone? Sometimes they do it at parties. Big, big laughs. Mr. Michelson? Pretty good, huh? I'm afraid I don't understand. Michael stands, offers his hand to Dave. And that's just fine, just fine, Dave. So we're done. We good here. Dave stands, still confused. He goes to the door. I guess so. I... Wait, so... So you want me to, to, to fire off. Well, nice guy, poor performance, right? Michelson stares seriously at Dave. Dave starts to cave. 
I guess so. I mean, I'm happy to do it, but he's your employee, Dave. Your employee. Michelson glares at him. I understand, sir. I guess I guess his numbers are what they are. A knock comes on the door. Michelson and Dave look at each other. Yes? Arthur, early 20s, opens the door. Michelson and Dave both look alarmed. Arthur! So sorry to bother you. I saw you in here and thought, well, why not catch both of you at the same time? What can we do for you? Arthur holds out a single piece of paper to Michelson. Michelson takes it and reads it. There are a lot of typos. Michelson strains. Oh, so many typos. What does this say? I'm resigning from Jeffrey's Michelson. Michelson perks up excitedly. Really? I am so sorry to hear that, Arthur. Dave here was just telling me how much he thinks of you. Oh, thank you. I can't tell you both how rewarding it's been to work here. And Dave is an awesome supervisor. But anyway, I'm, I'm leaving because I just got an opportunity to do my dream job. And what would that be? I'm going to be flying the traffic helicopter for Channel 11 News. Dave's eyes go wide with panic. Outstanding. And I imagine that's a wee bit more complicated than what we do here. It's a lot more complicated. Arthur, you're going to fly a helicopter? A big, huge mechanical flying machine with incredibly fast whirling blades above, above people? And traffic? Busy traffic? Uh, well, yes, that's how it works. Marvelous, and I'm sure you're going to do fine the Channel 11 newscopter here in this city? No, no, in Connecticut. Perfect! <laughs> I didn't even know you flew, Arthur. Oh, it took me forever to get my license. I just kept failing the test over and over, but I finally got it. Good for you. Well, I just wanted to share the news. He shakes both of their hands excitedly. Thank you both so much. Dave is overcome with a crisis of conscience. Arthur, Arthur, I, I just, I just, I just want to tell you. Arthur looks confusedly at Michelson. He looks back at Dave. Fly safe? Blackout. That was the Arthur problem. And that was the last of our pieces, folks. Uh, thank you so much. We wanted to spend some time uh, just uh, uh, opening it up here, and uh, we wanted to do a bit of Q&A. That's all the end of the pieces. If you guys have any questions for any of the authors about any of their, any of their pieces or about the workshop, um, if you want, you can uh, either do it in the chat or you can uh, unmute yourselves and, and turn your cameras on at this point. Um, and uh, and we'd love to see your faces and hear from you at this point. I have, oh, we've already lost half of our folks. <laughs> okay. I'm happy to get it started because I have questions for all of these guys. I wanted to go back to uh, the uh, the piece in Washington, uh, Jay. Um, so so uh, this is the piece, this was the second piece. This was about the three crazy guys uh, at the Capitol on, on, in, in Washington on the day of the Capitol. So what what inspired that piece? Like, I, like I'm not sure. Yeah, um, insurrection, insurrection, and insurrection. <laughs> and, and what was the prompt for, we also, as I mentioned at the beginning, most of these pieces have prompt. What was the prompt for that? Uh, insurrection, I think. No. no. What was, what was, somebody help me out here. What was the prompt? Uh, 
Is like, that it wasn't like we roll or something, was it? Was it something like that? Now we <laughs> roll. You drive my car? Was that? No, no, no. Attack on Washington. Attack on Washington. Attack on Washington. It was apropos of the time. Yes. That was one of the few times when we actually did a prompt that was very specific. We rarely do them that are that specific, but it was such a big event, obviously, that we wanted to get people to weigh in on it. So, you know, you've had characters in some of your other pieces who have been sort of running wild. What, what, it, when, what inspires you to, to put them in that place? What inspired you for that one? Uh, fury, uh, disgust. I mean, it was just such an infuriating and ugly thing. And I felt like this was a great way to just, just make them do this over and over and over again and never succeed. I, I felt that that was good. I wanted to consign them to a hell of their own making. <laughs> so, so it's perpetual. Yeah, yeah. Basically, they never escape. They just keep doing it over and over again. And every time they try to kill some other public official, it always winds up being Trump. <laughs> Excellent. Very good. Maxine, did you have a question for the group? I saw you came on and you turned off your uh, you turned on your camera. I do not have a question. Okay. I had a hard time hearing sometimes. Right. I, I, ah, okay, very good. <laughs> I, I missed some of the dialogue, so I had to kind of fill in. And uh, We can't uh, hear them. Well, well, we'll redo all the pieces for you now. <laughs> okay. Um, we'll start. Right, Back to one, everyone. <laughs> I loved it. I loved every bit of it. You're Thank recording you. this, right? Yeah, we are. Yeah. Right. So just start the recording over for 10 percent. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, the, this, this is going to be the fifth podcast, so you guys can just listen to the podcast, and uh, you can hear them all over again there. Yeah, clean it up. We, we will. No. No? Okay. <laughs> take out the swearing. What swear. you see is what you Yeah, we'll take out all yes, the swearing. Yes, let's bleep the swearing. <laughs> and, Dave, and the nudity. <laughs> Dave, Green Elephant. Green Elephant yes. was the very first piece we read here. And, uh, and uh, you know, interestingly, it seems like at least one of the people playing uh, in the piece may have been, is that, did that really? So Green Elephant is the one where they're searching for a bathroom and there doesn't seem to be one and they have the, they have a, a potential porta potty in the car. Is that, did this happen? Well, yes, it did. We were on a road trip out to Salt Lake City, and uh, our friend, our friend uh, who was out there, had had a green elephant. That's the brand name for this. What is uh, that? It's it's like a uh, a pop up tent uh, that has a portable, like a toilet seat, like just the toilet seat, and you put a bag of like kitty litter under it, and you do your business in that. And uh, our friend who had, had driven to Cincinnati was really proud of herself for this, and. So that gave me the idea for the story. But then uh, Jane, when we took the trip out the other way, we bought our own version of the, the green elephant and we actually used it for how many miles, dear? 1,600? 1,600 one way. Yeah, 1,600 <laughs> one way. And uh, we never used a public toilet. So we used the, that thing. Fortunately, we never did it in the car, but our friend did it in the car. So I basically, that, that was the inspiration. That must have great willpower. So, yeah. so Jane, you were reading uh, Diane in that piece. Was there a sense of deja vu for you <laughs> when you read the piece? Deja vu. Did you? Deja vu. <laughs> Oh, no, yeah. don't want to go there. No. Okay. Don't want to go there. Alex, Alex, yes. let me just say I'm I'm glad I was not on that trip. Let's just say that. Yeah. Very good. Moving right along. Um where's Hank? There's Hank. Hank, uh, I wanted to um Hank wrote the piece uh in the garage. 
uh, he wrote a piece about um, about uh, the, uh, the the woman and the hitman and the dog Milo, and Greek Greek tragedy and Greek literature really comes into that piece. Uh, and 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 there were actually versions of that piece even earlier where it came in even more. So talk to me about the, about Antigone and, and your thoughts about you know did did the Greek myths inspire this piece? Um, actually. It didn't. Um, the piece was short um, at first. It was only a few pages. And it reached a point in the conflict between the two of them uh, before the conflict had to be resolved. I had a sufficient pages to turn in for the next meeting. And then I think you suggested, oh, take it a little bit further. So I had to resolve the conflict between them. And Evan's perspective was so logical and rational. I thought, how am I gonna explain, how is she gonna try and uh, try and <clears throat> stand against that? And I realized that the only way she could do it is if she irrationally maintained her ideals and her perception of the world, which is basically the, the, the conflict between Antigone and Creon, where he's totally logical and rational, and she's totally basing her resistance on an ideal. And so that's where the, he challenges her, you know, he realizes, and, and in truth, when you look at the picture, <clears throat> she grew up like a princess in this, in this little kingdom, which was the warehouse of, you know, her father's auto mechanic shop with the mechanics being the knights and the jesters and the dog was the protector. And um, so it just all fit. It just kind of fell in that way. And Evan really doesn't want to have to kill him. I mean, he's really goes to some effort to try and resolve the no, situation. But he, no, but that's correct. He definitely does not want to do that. And, um, and, but he can't go back without the cards. His, what's hanging over his head, he has to complete this job. And if the dog has to die, that's fine. Um, I don't think anybody wanted them all to die, but that's just the way it turns out. Yeah, well, so, that, that's what happens frequently. Sometimes Greek, the conflict, well, <laughs> yeah. Very good. Again, if anybody has any questions uh, and uh, they want to um, unmute themselves, or if you want to put it in chat, we are looking at that. Uh, Michael Barmack just jumped yeah. out there. Yeah, could ask question? a question. Yeah, I had a question. I'm I'm very curious about um, writing to a prompt, and I'm just wondering in terms of your creative process. When you write to a prompt, do you just go with your first um, thought, feeling, or do you? come up with several different ways it can go and then you and then how do you decide which which one to actually choose all right I, I either get the idea right away as soon as the prompt is said or nothing comes until I start writing writing and hope something pops out that's just it's for me that's the way it is yeah. and I usually get it either instantly or if I don't get it then I have to just keep saying it in my head over and over and, and just, you know, having it come in and out. And then after a few days, and I sometimes I'll come up with several scenarios for the prompt. 
Uh, and then, and, and then once I, once I've got the scenario, I'm like, like it's, it sort of writes itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes it comes to me right away, and if it doesn't, it will de- develop gradually over the next couple of days, and then it'll usually take two drafts for me to get something that that feels complete uh, that I want to submit. I don't. Um, personally, I, I don't write to the prompt. I'm not skilled enough to outline a play and try to fill it in. I just start writing with two characters who talk to each other and somehow eventually in their conversation, something will be alluded to, which is close enough to the prompt to be able to say, oh yeah, that was the prompt. It takes a brave man to admit that he just ignores the problem <laughs> and, and tacks it off the end. And my and my style is um, I, I I I kind of just barf stuff up. I uh, I go very stream of conscious and try and go into automatic writing. I guess you would call it. And um, and and I just fill up a couple pages. Um, and some of the words make no sense whatsoever, and some of them do. And then I and then I walk away from it, and I go back to it, and I see if there are any patterns there, or what what resonated with me. So, mm-hmm. um, good question. Good question, Michael. Good question. If anybody else has any questions? Uh, we'd love to hear them. Yes. Do you start with the same prompt, and then each of you take it in a different direction? Do we all start with the same prompt, and then each take it in a different direction? Yes. <laughs> yeah. We try and keep the prompts very vague so that, um, you know, so that, you know, we, we don't want to say, um, you know, uh, we'll be an example of a bad prompt. The, the, the there's a fish here. <laughs> there's a fish here. No, see, that's a good prompt because... Maybe you can drive my car. Attack on Washington was a tricky one because it, it's much more centralizing everybody on the same topic. And we usually like to steer away from that because we don't want eight people doing pieces about Trump or eight people doing pieces about a clown or eight people doing pe- pieces about, you know, getting a, a death notice from, you know... Something, yeah. Um, so we try and keep them pretty vague, but once in a blue moon, we'll do something specific. And, and even when we did Attack on Washington, we had we had ten or however many people did it that night. We we, we can have up to fourteen people in the group. Um, we we we've uh, we got very very different takes on that, and that's that's what we usually like. Yeah, and, and also you, it feels to me like oh sorry, what is Susie, how did you all get together? How do we all get together? We we kind of um, it started with um, me and uh, Ted Wrigley and uh, a lot of folks from the New Jersey School for the Dramatic Arts. Uh, it, it was a kind of a combination of the folks at the New Jersey School of the Dramatic Arts and the Rising Third Curtain Theater Company, which are very very closely tied to each other. Um, and uh, and we 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 had just done a big show. Um, in February of last year, we were kind of, what are we going to do next when COVID hit? And COVID shut everything down. So we really were saying, well, what could we do to kind of keep it going? And, and this is what we came up with. So initially, a lot of the people in the group were from that. But then we, since it's writer focused, we started reaching out to um, a lot of other folks. Um, and uh, one of our members um, brought in Jay and Jay brought in his friend Jake. And it kind of was a ripple effect. <laughs> And, and actually, we've got uh, a couple people, uh, a bunch of other folks 
like Matt uh, uh, Matt Hopkins online is um, is a part of a, the um, New Jersey School for Dramatic Arts, study by nature. So a lot of improv folks and uh, and uh, Christina, who, who's on with I think is our Christina, uh, but I'm not sure is um, uh, is is also one of the writers in the group. Joe Fernandez, who was on earlier, was also in the writers in the group. Um, uh, so we're waiting for a couple other questions. We're not going to go too much longer, folks, but um, I just want to add in a couple other questions for these guys. Jake, did you ever get to break dance on camera? Ever? No. Never. And I never will. At this point. Oh. But now because of YouTube, I, I think, I, and I will do this sometimes, 62, but I can do this. Um, I never learned how to do the really cool move, the windmill, which is now a very standard part of most um, gymnastic floor exercises. They do it, you know, a little fancier, hop off the ground. But that thing where they spin around—it's—it's—it's it, it's, it's a very cool move. I never learned how to do it because it just—I kept banging my hips, and my feet into the floor. But now we, I'm sure there's a tutorial on YouTube that will show me how to do it safely. <laughs> do you want to give everybody a sample? Time? I know. <laughs> <laughs> Did you do the thing where you spin on your head? No. Okay. Um. And uh, <laughs> Dave, do you anything you want to say about great moments in linguistics? What was, the, what was the prompt for that one? Uh, there is a fish here. It was the prompt. Which is, yeah. 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 And I, that was one I, I struggled with. And But I got the inspiration. I work with uh, Colombians. And, you know, they obviously speak Spanish. And I always, um, you know, encourage them. You know, their English is always really good. But I tell them I'm in, intimidated by Spanish. And they're like, no, Spanish is really consistent. And and uh, I'm like, well, I don't, the, the gender articles, law and L, scare me. And they're like, why not? Why do they scare you? I'm like, well, we don't have those in English. And then they were like, well, why not? And I had to like look it up one time and figure out. And that was the story is that the, the normal North, I mean, it was really happened that I'm like, let's make this into a skit. Sketch. <laughs> a sketch. Short a, short a short play. And uh, that's where the idea came from. And I have a follow up to it. Uh, it's going to be about the great vowel shift. Okay. Ah. Yeah, so, so look forward to that. I, I think that, you know, it was interesting. Uh, Dave and I uh, grew up together, and we've known each other since I was in grade school. And uh, I, and until that piece, I never heard Dave use the F word in his life. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that after that piece, I don't think he ever used it again. So, well, I didn't have to read it, as you recall. <laughs> oh, so he, he, didn't, he actually didn't even use it there, either. Well, they used it frequently enough in that piece to cover the previous. You sublimated it through everybody else. That's right. You, you go you all square. I, you should see him on the sidelines when people are doing that piece, because he's in seventh heaven. <laughs> um, um, did you I, did do comedy together in high school? Do we do comedy together in high school? That's an awesome no, question. No, we didn't. Oh, yes, we. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Is that what it was? <laughs> yeah, it depends on your definition of the word comedy. Talking about real life. Yeah. Do you no, do anything Well, yeah, we were in this group. It was called the Six Pistols, and Alex, in, in some weird uh, way, got us a radio show, an yeah. actual over the air radio show that we did it was called jabberwock aftershock which was it seemed like a big deal at the time it did and uh yeah generally alex would write the script it was an hour-long show we play comedy records and uh, a bunch of them well in the early days but then you know you were so prolific we're like what did you do this and we would perform them live on the air just kind of like this like this so it was pretty much like this like felt like uh, the old six pistols yeah except we didn't play comedy records (laughs) during tonight so (laughs) 
Any, any other thoughts or questions? Yeah, I was wondering, uh, when you're creating characters, how much of them are truly a creation? How much is just uh, kind of stealing from the people you actually know and just putting them into the situation? That's an awesome question. Matt asks, uh, when you're creating characters, how much of it is actually creating characters and how much of it is just stealing from people you know? <laughs> well, I mean, for me, it's all stealing for all of them. There's no creativity. No, I'm sorry. It's called sampling, I think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, I, I pretty much always draw from experience. Yeah. And something that um, either happened in my life, a, a memory, and I'll just riff off of it. That's what I typically do. Dave had a piece like that in the last podcast, actually. Yeah. yeah. I, I write people who just talk to each other. And if, when it's over, it looks like something familiar or the people seem familiar, I can't help that. That's just... <laughs> the way it is. There's six billion people in the world you're bound to remind somebody of someone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sometimes a character drives it. Sometimes a concept drives it. And um, and sometimes, you know, you're just, you're, it's observational and you're, you're relaying something that happened. And I think we have, we have a lot of both of that tonight. We have pieces where it was concept-based um, and uh, we have pieces where, no, I knew these people. So... Mm -hmm. Yeah, mine, mine was I knew these people. The the thing about the um, guy getting uh, fired and, and the helicopter was pretty much verbatim. Uh, I, I I was the character who goes to the boss in my life and told him that he was dyslexic and he did shut the door and he um, and he and he and he was basically doing exactly what Jake was. He wasn't as entertaining as Jake was, <laughs> but he was definitely like shut the door. Let's start the conversation. Over. And the guy did end up going to fly a helicopter. So uh, did he ever uh, kill anybody? Huh? Did he ever kill anyone? I, I don't think he ended up killing anybody. Okay. But, but he, he may have. I kind of lost track of him at that point. So Google it. Yeah. 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 I'm have to find out. Remember what his name is. <laughs> um, any other questions? Listen, folks, thank you so much um, uh, for, for everything tonight. You've been a fantastic audience. Uh, and that's pretty much it for uh, uh, what we're going to call episode five of Curtains on Fire Live. Uh, before we go, I just have to mention a few people. Um, the Curtains on Fire workshop and podcast were created and are produced by me and Ted Wrigley. Our graphics were created by Pina Carey. And our theme music was created by Dave Doster because Dave doesn't do enough already. <laughs> um, I, I obviously want to thank uh, all of our writers and performers tonight. Jay Strong, Dave Doster, Jake Daler, Hank Fandel, and Jane, Jane Doster and her big debut, her big off-off-off-Broadway debut. I want to thank my dog Ace for not barking during the podcast because he was barking while everybody was lining up to see the show. Uh, I want to send a big shout out to all of our incredible Curtains on Fire writers who couldn't join us tonight for various reasons. There's a lot of them that they really all uh, wanted to be here. Lynn Langoni, Amy Rausch, Nat Janace, Tarek Salim, Christina Mastrani, Allison Adams, Joe Fernandez, who was here with us earlier, and our director and contributor, Ted Wrigley, who I've mentioned a few times. And thank you all guys so much for listening in tonight. Big round for all of you guys. 
guys have been the best. Thank you so much. We'd love to hear your feedback. If you have any, you can always reach out to us at info at risingcurtaintheatercompany.com. And please join us next time for more new works by up-and-coming playwrights like these fine folks. And until then, don't stand so close to the curtains!